Hello again. This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. And this is the summer 2022 installment of Interview with the PD Pod. My guest today is a good friend of mine, Vish Talwalker uh, from University of Kentucky in Lexington and the Shrine Hospital there. Vish is a presence at pretty much every POSNA. And I think one of those people who all of us who know him really look forward to seeing. He's always got a smile on his face. He's always got a lot of people around him. I think that he is universally beloved by the members of POSNA, by his friends, I'm sure, by his patients as well. Um, He has also been a little bit of a a guiding light for me, uh, although I I didn't know him at the time. We uh, both went to residency at Vanderbilt and fellowship at uh, Texas, and so I've always felt a little bit of a... uh, a close kindred spirit to, to Vish. Um, he's served on the board for POSNA. He's very involved in POSNA in uh, a lot of different ways and has been active in research as well. Um, I think, again, probably the, the thing that I was most looking to in terms of talking to him was uh, just his, uh, his love for what he does, his passion for life. Uh, he's got a great family uh, who he spends a lot of time with as well. So I was excited to get to talk to him about it. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Vish Talwalker from University of Kentucky. Uh, and I was really overjoyed to see so many great people last uh, month at the POSNA annual meeting. And I can give you a little bit of a, a sneak preview for next year's annual meeting as we just got back from Nashville a couple weeks ago, but the venue there is going to be awesome, and Nashville is going to be a great city, so I look forward to seeing everybody there. So thank you again to everybody on the uh, podcast committee, especially Carter Clement, who helps produce this, uh, and enjoy this conversation with Vish. Vish, uh, it's a real honor and pleasure to have you here today. Uh, we'll get into a little bit later that I think I'm maybe the first person after you to sort of follow your uh, your footsteps and going from Vanderbilt to Dallas and always sort of looked up to you as uh, as somebody within within Posna. So it's it's a lot of fun to get to talk to you, and I appreciate you making the time tonight. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here, and I look forward to it. So. I know uh, we were talking before this that uh, you just got done sort of watching baseball, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. But you are, I believe, a true Kentucky blue blood. Um, you went to Murray State, so I sort of surmise that you're probably also from Kentucky. Tell me a little bit about uh, your childhood and, and how you grew up. So uh, we, uh, my family immigrated here from India when I was four myself, my parents, and my older brother, uh, we all came around 1972. And so after that, you know, I grew up in Lexington, uh, and uh, my parents worked at the university for about 30 years. And uh, I never went to school at UK, uh, but uh, they certainly worked there. And I, my younger brother ended up going there and playing baseball. Uh, we uh, came back here after being away. We went, I went to, I ended up going to Murray it was not even a school that I had even considered going to, but I grew up as a kid uh, playing sports, and that's pretty much what we did. Uh, and uh, whatever we could get our hands on, we played. And I ended up playing football uh, at Murray, and that's how I ended up there. I got recruited to play football, and that's where I met my wife. And uh, um, we love Murray, and my daughter actually graduated from there as well. So after that, then uh, I was sort of busy wrapped up and doing all my stuff there and I applied to a few places you know back then 
it wasn't like it is now where you have to apply so many different places to get a spot in medical school. And my biochemistry professor there recommended that I apply at Washington University. And so that's where I ended up going to medical school right at the last minute. I was all ready to go to UK. I even had a roommate. One of, one of my friends from Murray, who I played football with, uh, was going to be my roommate in medical school here. And I called and checked at Wash U right before I sort of made my last minute preparations. And they said, I'd been on the wait list there and they said a spot opened up. And so then I ended up, uh, ended up there at the last minute. And then, um, uh, after that, it was down to Vanderbilt for a residency. And then, uh, you know, the, the Texas Scottish Rite for fellowship. So it seems like yesterday, but gosh, it's been, I've been in practice now 23 years. So it's been a while. Yeah, it has. That's wild. So, so <laughs> I, I had seen something online that I thought was great. You, uh, this was your your shrine profile, and you said that the plan had been to go be a professional football player and then come back to being uh, uh, to, to to career in medicine. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, uh, clearly, you were an athlete as as a child because you played you know collegiate sports. But you know, uh, did your parents sort of always try to put the reins on you and pull you back and and make sure that you had that future in medicine available to you? Well, like most immigrant families, there's school, which is really your job, and then there's all the other stuff that you do that's fine, right? So you can you can play sports if you take care of your stuff in school, or you can you know you can you know play rock and you know rock, you know and do whatever you want, but uh, as long as you took care of your grades. And so they they were pretty open minded. My, my you know my parents obviously the world that they grew up in was very different than the world that I grew up in. And, but they never really uh, did anything to, you know, stifle our dreams or kind of keep us uh, limited in what we thought we were going to do. And so, yeah, I had a good plan when I was, uh, you know, 10 or 11 that I thought, well, you know, I'll play professional football for a few years and then I'll come back <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll be a doctor and it'll be fine. But, well, that's uh, good. It was, it was that or astronaut, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds so easy in hindsight. So, so what was growing up in Kentucky like? You said your folks were um, uh, on faculty at, at UK. Is that right? Right. They were both academics. My dad was a PhD in biochemistry, and my mom had a PhD in microbiology. So they uh, they met uh, when they were uh, graduate students in India, uh, and then uh, came here uh, after they had done their postdocs and had worked for a little while uh, because they knew someone who had come to the university uh, and it was a friend of theirs from India. And then, so my, my parents ended up coming here in the, in the early seventies. And then, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was one of those kids that figured out that sports is a, is a good way to integrate into, uh, into life. So it was, uh, it was sort of our pathway, certainly for me and my brother, seven years, my younger brother, seven years younger than me. So he kind of, we always tell him that he had the, he had the easy way, you know, it was all paved, uh, all the, all the hard stuff was already paved over for him. But we, uh, so we played sports and, uh, played, uh, that was back in the day when everybody played everything. So everybody played basketball and it's that, you know, seasons were basketball, baseball and football. We played everything and that's how you made friends and that's how you sort of, uh, you got by in life. And, uh, I immersed myself in that and, you know, have, was lucky that I, I was on good teams. And, uh, as I got further along in high school, you know, I started to get recruited a little bit here and there. And, you know, I was a, I was a, a decent high school football player, but my first, uh, my first day at practice in college, I realized that these were different, uh, 
different breeds of cat and so that uh and and you know i was, I was always focused on doing academic stuff anyway but i was <laughs> at that point <laughs> the dream the dream died a, a, a quick death <laughs> quickly came back down to earth yeah i can imagine yeah. i can imagine what position do you play in football i was a quarterback in high school and then in college i was a quarterback and then a defensive back for a couple of years man that's pretty good what was your best stat line uh, stat line. Uh, yeah. So in in college, I didn't. You know, uh, stat line's a good way to say it because I did most of my best work on the clipboard. Uh, you know, I was uh, uh, as as a backup quarterback. You have to learn how to look good in a hat uh, and holding a clipboard. So I did. Uh, I did a fair amount of that. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's good. And so, so you had these parents who were sort of the, on the, on the research, you know, microbiology and, and biochemistry side, was that never in the cards? Did you really need something that was a little bit more people facing? You know, I never really considered that much. I, I did a year of lab research when I was in college it, it was okay, but I, I knew it really, it wasn't for me. It was, it's tedious. There's such a long ramp up time to get results, especially when you're doing bench research. And uh, oftentimes the results are not uh, what you think. And so I spent uh, most of a summer just basically re- uh, tuning and refining an assay uh, that uh, was part of a much larger project. And uh, I quickly realized that that was not something that uh, that I really wanted to do. And I wanted something that allowed me some more face-to-face people interactions and uh you know and also the the funding situation you know when you're in research um a lot of the times my folks were on sort of soft money and so living on grants and and figuring out the next projects and funding and i didn't want to do that so i i thought i'd try and do something that provided a little more stability uh, that way as well yeah i think that's uh that's something that probably a lot of us saw at some point so I, I, I want to get into this uh, because obviously it's it's the first of the two sp- stops that you made that I can really relate to. But tell me about Vanderbilt. Um, you know, you went, you were there at a little bit of a different time, and we'll talk about the Peds side in a second. But you know, I was I was there at the end of Green's career when he had uh, sort of softened up a little bit. But you know, <laughs> I, I know that you had a love for Mens, you have a love for Mencio and, and Green, but. Tell me about sort of your experience at Vanderbilt and what drove you into Peds. Because my suspicion is, as a football guy, you came there probably wanted to go into sports. Well, you know, I thought about that when I went into medical school, that that's, uh, that was sort of an interest for me, maybe. But then uh, when I was in medical school at Wash U, I, I took care of some kids. And uh, I met uh, John Scheneker's dad, Perry, and he was, uh, he was a big influence on me. Uh, and I saw how devoted he was and how hard he worked, but he was always sort of upbeat and he loved what he did. And you could just feel that in the way that he dealt with patients and he loved to teach. And it's one of those things where a lot of what he taught, uh, he didn't have to say verbally. You just, uh, he modeled the behavior and you could see in him that he really had a passion for what he did. And I thought that was pretty cool. And then when I was uh, uh, rotating as a fourth-year medical student at Vanderbilt, because Dr. Green was the program director, you wanted to rotate with him for sure. And so I, I rotated on the PED service uh, and got to know him and Dr. Mencio. And um, 
it was fantastic because Dr. Green was, you know, he was no nonsense at that time. It was, uh, he very uh, much demanded that you knew what you were doing before you started a conversation with him. So the, uh, the classic, uh, as you know, with, with Green was uh, if you, if you started a conversation and then stopped, especially when he was on call mid sentence, there's a good chance that you were going to get uh, sent back to talk to your senior residents and uh, make sure your plan was in order before, uh, before trying that again. So, so they really had a big influence on me. And then, uh, luckily that was, uh, where I ended up matching in residency and, uh, you know, every step along the way, I've been really grateful for, for having great, great mentors who luckily, uh, I can call them friends now. And so it's, uh, it's just, uh, it's been kind of a magical life. It's fantastic. You know, a, a few comments. It's amazing. I had John Scheneker on as I think my my uh, second podcast guest, and we talked a little bit about his dad, who was our visiting professor when I was when John was a chief a year ahead of me. Mm-hmm. And he still, and in, in his eighties, seems to have the same just love of everything that he does that he had probably back when you know you were with him in the nineties. It's amazing. He really is a a remarkable guy. Um, and, and I had a question for you about green. So I also rotated on Dr. Green's service and, mm-hmm. uh, I- intimidating would be, uh, would be an understatement. Um, and, and he was a remarkable guy. He said about five words to me, the entire rotation, and then apparently wrote a letter that my mom probably couldn't have written for me. He was, I, I, I remember him being so observant of everything and so aware of, of everything that was going on. And you're absolutely right. I think he, he demanded a level of preparation that probably in 2022 isn't as much uh, in vogue anymore. You know, there was the, the famous phone call that he wanted at two in the morning, which was nine-year-old type three posted and he'd go perfect and hang up the phone. And that's a, you know, that's, I think that's a little bit of a different time. Tell me about how you juggled him and Mencio who had such different personalities as you came along your, your path towards Pete's ortho. Well, you know, I, I, I tried to learn from, from both of them and the things that I learned from Dr. Green were be exacting, right? Pay attention to all the details and, um, in that way, then if you are that demanding of yourself, then it's a little bit easier to be to, to ask the residents to have the same sort of level of preparation. And you know, from Mencio, I learned so many things about how to treat families and people, and um, also how to enjoy life. You know, how to enjoy uh, doing what we do because he always made everybody feel like we were all in one sort of you know, we're on this one happy trip together and, you know, we're going to end up where we end up and uh, we'll get there eventually, but uh, let's have, let's have fun and tell some jokes and still do the right thing. I mean, so they were very different in personality. And I think I learned from both of them different things, but I, you know, at at their core, you know, and, and I think kind of the credo of what we all tried to do at Vanderbilt was the, you know, do the right thing. And whether that's the hard thing or whether it's the easy thing, it's to do the right thing for the patients. And that was the ethos. And it's amazing that that they were able to build the culture like that because, you know, after being sort of in resident education for for a while now, building the culture uh, so that it's self-propagating and self-regulating is not easy. No, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that I I, I thought about the other day that Green used to do um, that I wanted to highlight was 
because it came up in my own work is he always protected us. He would mm-hmm. light you up behind closed doors. Um, I mean, I remember him calling me out of a uh, out of a, a pelvic fracture and my trauma attending not being particularly happy because I put on a you know a loose splint. And he had me come to his clinic, you know, and you, you hated to get that, uh, that call that you were going to come to his clinic and, and take a look at the splint. But the interesting thing was always that if the emergency department had any sort of issue, you were always protected. He, he really cared for the people who he worked with, obviously within reason, but, but he would protect you. And I think that it was hard at times because he, w- he was difficult and challenge- he would challenge you. But at the same time, there was that level of respect and love that you knew was there when, when it came down to it. And I, I, it came up recently in my own, uh, my own practice. I just thought that was great about Korean. Yeah. And Dan Spangler was the same way. And I think that they had a, they had a really a beautiful partnership between the two of them because they, uh, they, they protected us at every turn. And they, you know, if you were called on the carpet and you were in trouble, then you probably deserved it. Uh, and, uh, but they never, uh, they never would do that uh, to you in public. Absolutely. Now, you know, with, I mentioned your uh, sort of background in, in athletics, but were there other things at Vanderbilt that sort of caught your eye that you thought about doing outside of PEDS? You know, I kind of, I liked it all. <clears throat> I liked it all. I was one of the, I was, I was one of those residents who, when I was doing hand surgery, I thought, man, this is cool. I could do this. And when I was doing tumor, I thought, man, these are amazing operations and you get to, you know, potentially change a person's direction in life. I mean, everything, everything was fun to me. I like, uh, I like doing joints. I liked, uh, I love taking, you know, giving the, like, uh, Dr. Christie used to say the, uh, the chicken bone talk about, uh, <laughs> the, the cartilage, the shiny cartilage on the end of the chicken bone and taking care of little old ladies and, uh, you know, and, and doing spine surgery. I, I, I loved it all. I, I really could have enjoyed, uh, doing any of those things, but peds for me was the, uh, uh, the most attractive because it had the greatest variety and you could operate all over the body. And it was just the most fun. I, I loved uh, being with the kids. And uh, I thought, you know, I could do this for 20, 30, 40 years as long as I can do it and still be happy. Uh, so I think that was that was the thing that pushed me over the edge is that I could I never saw that pediatrics would become monotonous. It definitely will not. I, you know, uh, uh, finishing up on Green before he moved on to Dallas, I think uh, Dr. Green told John Scheneker that he finally figured out peds at age 63. And that's a giant. Yeah, exactly. He retired at 64. And he, that's a giant in the field. I think it tells you how, how we're always approaching uh, sort of the that that level of understanding and never really getting there. Um, so for the for the younger, especially for the residents who listen to this, talk about the process of getting to Dallas in, uh, I guess it would have been what, 1997, 98 ish. Um, 98. I finished in 98. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so different. Cause now like I had 25 applicants in my class and now there's 60. Um, how did you get to Dallas? Did green sort of say, here's where you're going or was there something that really, um, spoke to you when you visited? Yeah. So when I decided that, uh, I thought I wanted to do peds, uh, I remember having this conversation with him in his office and, uh, he said, okay, there's three programs I want you to go look at. <laughs> so I went to San Diego, I went to Atlanta, and I went to Dallas. And there were, you know, there were probably somewhere between 12 and 15 applicants that year. And another one was uh, Laura Myers, who was from my program. Yep. 
So we, uh, I think we both interviewed at pretty much the same three places and she ended up in San Diego and I ended up in, uh, in Dallas. Couldn't have worked out any better for either of us. It, it was a perfect fit for both, but it was, it was not this tour of going around and interviewing at 30 places, uh, like, uh, our residents seem to do when they're looking for a peat spot. And I think it probably is a reflection of the growth and popularity of the field because of the, you know, the expansion of uh, how we deal with uh, hip pathology and sort of the advancement of uh, some of the techniques in spine surgery and the incorporation of sports medicine. And so the, it's sort of a double-edged sword because it's a little bit fragmenting to our field because there's so many of us that don't, or people that don't do everything or they have a really focused practice. And then there's some of us like me who are generalists and do a lot of uh, a lot of everything you know the the I, I enjoy the variety of it yeah absolutely and and i think that's what what dallas has excelled at for so many years um, talk about that year i mean i think that that is it, it's it's such a unique place and it really is a family uh, mentality uh in terms of the the experience i think for certainly for for my family you know my, yeah. my wife and kids were brought along but but i think that the faculty as well sort of treat you as in a, in a way that, that, you know, we could only hope to do in Atlanta. It's just, it's such a unique spot. Yeah. It's a magical year, right? The, the great thing about Dallas is that you go there and they take you in, even though you're completely undeserving and they wrap their arms around you and, and uh, make you one of theirs. And you learn so much about life and you learn so much about orthopedic surgery and you learn so much about <clears throat> how to deal with partners and how to educate uh, and the uh, <clears throat> you know the, the the ability for Dr. Herring to be completely selfless and without ego just permeates the whole program and that way you you can feel it there that uh, the you know when they were in the indications conference you know criticizing each other or questioning uh, how things went I thought this was, this is amazing. You know, this is these guys uh, and, and the people who were being, you know, questioned uh, or being asked of why things, you know, why'd you do it this way and that way? Uh, uh, they weren't offended by it. And so it was so refreshing to be in that environment where they were uh, just sort of free with their mistakes and, and uh, cases that were complicated and, uh, maybe didn't go perfectly. That's probably the thing that stuck with me the most is uh, that ability to try and uh, listen well and to not make myself the center of attention. You know, it's so it's, it's really, that's Dr. Herring's superpower is to make everybody feel like they're the center of attention and not himself. Yeah, I, I couldn't couldn't agree more. You know, you're, it's funny because your practice has sort of been referred to jokingly as TSRH East. Um, you've had this steady stream. You know, it's you've got Chip uh, Winsky, you had Todd for a while, yeah. and now you've got Ryan. Yeah. Um, so, how have you? What things have you sort of brought into your practice? It's interesting in my own practice because you try to bring things in, but but Dallas is so unique in the structure and the makeup uh of the practice that it, it's not like you you certainly couldn't just you know carbon copy it and, and bring it to another city but what, what were the things that you've tried to emulate and bring into your practice in in uh kentucky well it, it, you know i've been so lucky that i've had great partners that we all 
we all get along and we all really genuinely like each other and we can talk about uh, almost anything. Uh, and so uh, I think that's probably a big part of, of what we all learned in Dallas is that the relationships and the journey are as important uh, as anything that you accomplish uh, uh, in medicine. And uh, the ability to sort of absorb different perspectives and thinking, because even though we all trained in Dallas, we trained in different times. And so when Chip was there, Jim Roach was on faculty, the Kit Song was on faculty. So uh, it was a different place than when I was there and when and Dan was just starting. So uh, he uh, he had just started, and there was uh, when I started uh, with my group, we were just starting to do a little bit of trauma, uh, and the relationship with children so it was uh, sort of a fledgling relationship at that point, and certainly there was no place to go north in Frisco, so uh, it was really uh, a different place than what uh, Ryan has trained. We were hiring a new one of the one of the guys who's just finishing up his fellowship down there now. So what he's how he's trained is going to be different. But I think the similarities are the the closeness of the relationship of the faculty and the dedication and sort of commitment to uh, to teaching that help. And, and the thing that I've come to respect now is I've known those guys for so long. Their intellectual curiosity is amazing to me. It's, Tony Herring was 57 when I was a fellow, and I'm 54 now. And I think, wow, can I maintain that level of intellectual curiosity for another 25 years. And I'm not sure I can. And it's just amazing that they have been able to do that. It, it is. I mean, I, you know, I was got to interview Charlie last month for, um, something at, at Pozna and, um, he has the same level of engagement that he probably did 30 years ago. I mean, he is just sharp as can be. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So it, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about your practice staying a generalist. And it's funny because my suspicion is up until maybe the last very couple of years, most people coming out of Dallas did that. I certainly did that. I mean, and I mm -hmm. still am very much a generalist. But it's it's interesting building a practice in a large city like Atlanta that you, you have to work to hold on to it. As you join a big multidisciplinary group, you know, my practice, which was very much evenly split early on between hip and spine and trauma and foot and, you know, deformity has now really sort of molded into this fine, heavy practice. Do you feel that in a, in a city that's a little bit smaller, like Lexington, that there, that you're going to be able to hold out as sort of a, the, the last bastion of general pediatric orthopedists for longer? I sure hope so, but you know, we even even within our group, and you know, within the shrine system, it's a little bit different. Uh, you know, that's one of the similarities with Dallas is that the, the financial sort of workings of it are a little bit different. So even though you know the shrine now is different than the shrine was 30 years ago, it still protects us in some ways to be able to do that, so that uh, you can still be a generalist and and uh, not necessarily. Uh, be driven so much to uh, sort of maximize your time to, to be productive, at least financially productive. But in our group, we're a little bit subspecializing even, even now, uh, even though we all sort of see club feet and we all you know, see DDH and we all uh, see sort of angular and limb deformities, but not necessarily, but only one person is really doing a lot of limb lengthening and only a couple of guys are really doing the, the adolescent hip work 
and uh, few of us are doing uh, the, the majority of the spine. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's less uh, even even though we've tried to preserve it, it, it's hard to fight that fight. And we've even become a bit more subspecialized than we were when I started. Yeah, I also think that probably the level of of available information and technology changes have have changed that at least in my practice that it's just starting a practice in general is like drinking from a fire hose but when you're trying to stay up to date at the pace of modern medical uh information you know now instead of like one peds journal there's you know like it feels like 10 of them um yeah. and there's you know entire scoliosis journals that didn't used to exist um absolutely to split it within spine it it's hard to stay up on it um so you know i i i value my days i had one i guess two weeks ago where i did you know a couple of feet and a um limb deformity case and then had three spines the rest of the week you know it's a it's a it's great to have days that sort of allow you to come back to your roots as a generalist at times. I, I hope that I'm able to keep it. I hope you are as well. Yeah. But, you know, and there's something uh, sort of uh, uh, rejuvenating about seeing uh, a child that uh, has a club foot that has been treated well and they're running around and they're playing and they're doing those things after you've seen a patient with multiple the complex spine deformity. Absolutely. And that uh, ability to sort of exhale and breathe and 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 uh, not every problem has to be one that is all consuming. So it's yeah, it, you know, the, there's there obviously every family, their problem is their problem. And, and it's, it's, it's a huge thing in their life. But it's uh, from from our standpoint, uh, it's nice to uh, I like the, to have that ability to, to, to sometimes uh, breathe a little bit because those the, the bad complicated ones can can be overwhelming yeah absolutely it's a it's a terrific point um you know you, you alluded to the fact that you guys really do have a, a very unique relationship with the shrine talk about that relationship how it's evolved over time and sort of where it stands now yeah so our uh hospital or it's not officially it's not a hospital anymore our uh, medical center is uh, one of three in the shrine system that are ambulatory surgery centers. So we have, we built a new building that's uh, attached physically to the university, which is the, it's the fourth iteration of the Shriners uh, sort of building uh, in this location in Lexington. It used to be really close to the, to the university, but attached to a, a different hospital that the university now owns. And then it uh, moved to a location that uh, looked like it was sort of in the countryside. It was on 30 acres um, uh, looked like it was a horse farm, uh, and uh, it was a building that didn't look at all like a anything like a hospital. And so there were two hospitals built in that location, and that was the one that I started working uh, in. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, we did everything there except for the complicated uh, cases that might require an ICU. And then we had a relationship with UK that uh, we had since the inception of the university uh, medical center. So the uni- the, the shrine in Lexington is actually older than the academic medical center. So the academic medical center was built in the sixties. And so at that point there were three people in the orthopedic division. And one of them was David Stevens, who was the chief at the Shriners hospital. And so that affiliation has been there from, from the beginning. And so all of us spent uh, some time at the university seeing mostly fractures and trauma things there. Uh, as well as uh, our shrine practice. And then when we moved five years ago, we incorporated all of that clinical work into the Shriners building 
but all of the inpatient work, because we don't have any inpatient capacity, we did at the university. So gotcha. uh, it's caused us to have a, a significant uh, change, I think, in, in how we do things. We initially had some growing pains because our volumes in our clinic went up 40% in one year. And so it was, it was as you said, drinking from a fire hose. It was, it was like that for a lot of the staff uh, because of the, uh, the different nature of those fracture patients versus the traditional shrine patients who had other complicated problems. So uh, we've sort of worked through that a little bit. And now the way the, the, that our uh, building is, uh, is that we walk across a walkway to the university. So we're much more intimately uh, able to take care of the acute things that come up at the university through the emergency room, whether those are infections and trauma uh, and all the other things that you have to do. So I guess when you consider your practice, do you consider, you'd probably say both, but is it predominantly one or the other? Would you say you're predominantly a Shrine employee or you're predominantly a university employee or it's just sort of a 50-50 mix? So it's not 50-50. It used to be fairly easy to establish it as 80-20 because we'd spend four days a week at the Shrine and one day a week at the university. And and most of us are still in some pretty close ratio like that. Uh, Ryan Mucko is the program director at the university for the residency. So he has a little bit more time commitment to the university. Uh, and some, um, some of the other uh, uh, members of the group don't spend quite as much time at the university. So it, it's roughly 80-20, but it's, you know, there's give or take 10, 15%, depending on who's doing what. And does your, so I guess then the question is, uh, uh, I haven't spent a lot of time in the shrine, but you know, for my discussions with people who do, you know, the level of complexity can be pretty high. Um, you know, would you say that your sort of general shrine practice looks more like, I'm going to say a typical shrine practice or maybe more of the blended, like I'm in an academic practice that has, you know, a a large amount of in towing and toe walking and things like that as well, or is yours predominantly, you know, arthrogripotic and, uh, and severe scoliosis and, and that kind of stuff, uh, because it's, it's more of a shrine system. That's an interesting question because during the summer, just like you, right, we get, uh, we get, uh, tons and tons and tons of trauma. So all of those patients, uh, are now shrine patients. Right. So the, those become incorporated into our practice. So we try and make it so that uh, we sort of have a portion of a day of clinic where we see the majority of them, but they're essentially scattered throughout our days. And then we'll have days that are more uh, traditional sort of shrine patients. But it, it sounds like my practice sounds more like yours yeah. than, uh, than a traditional uh, shrine practice. I mean, I'll, I'll see somewhere between 40 and 50 patients. Uh, in the course of a day and some, you know, it'll range from, as you said, arthrogripotic complex spine deformity to intoing and um, DDH. So it's, I, I, I like the variety of that, uh, but it, it's, uh, it took some time, I think, for the people who work at the Shriners Hospital who are not physicians to kind of get used to the, the, the wide sort of array of needs of those patients because some obviously need all the services that we have available and some need very few of the services we have available beyond seeing me. So that's interesting. So I guess then the, the question be, I mean, you guys have this, this wonderful faculty, so you probably have people who are going into peds on a regular basis. If you had a, uh, a resident who left and said, I want to go be a shrine physician, 
Mm-hmm. Do you feel like they would feel at home in the other shrine centers across the country? Or would they say, oh, this is like really different from where I, where I, would, where I trained? I think all the shrines are so different that it's really hard to even categorize the sort of what are the classic shrine hospitals. I mean, they have a very similar feel, but I think their, their practice distribution is a little bit different. And there's a, you know, it's a dynamic time in the shrine. So there's a lot of changes going on. Uh, and so the willingness to um, be involved with fracture work and uh, take care of cover trauma, I think is something that lots of that is being done in, in the shrine. Sports medicine, there's a bunch of that being done in the shrine. So I think it's, uh, I think everyone is their own little, uh, little system and they, uh, uh, they function a little bit differently. But I think ours is maybe unique because I think we probably see more fractures and trauma than most of the other shrine hospitals. I think our relationship with the university, I think, is, is very close and, um, it's been a sort of a two way relationship that has worked for both partners and uh, there's been one that I think because both partners have been good at giving things up uh, not being interested in trying to exploit the other that uh, uh, that it's worked very well and that we feel like it is immensely important for our relationship to work uh, and something that uh, not I don't think all of the shrine hospitals have as intimate a relationship with their academic partner as we do. Yeah I was going to ask about that I mean um, I'm at a system uh, where I'm, you know, and this probably is, is not that unique across the country, but I'm Emory faculty b- mm-hmm. and teach Emory residents. But other than that, I never step in an Emory building. I'm, I'm purely children's, you know, from a, from a clinical standpoint. Yeah. And early on in my practice, uh, there were some contract issues that came up because children sort of said, great, we got somebody here. You're on the hook, Emery. And Emery said, great, we got somebody here. You're on the hook, children's. And then it was, <laughs> then it was like, you know, you're okay, buddy, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. How have you guys, what do you think the secret sauce has been to making this a, obviously without getting too much into the finances, but a financially viable uh, process for both uh, organizations and for you as surgeons? So, so I think the secret sauce, if you will, I think is the the fact that we we built the new building five years ago, but we've been uh, involved uh, with the university for 60 years. Although the building was built five years ago, the concept of starting to build the building was maybe 20 years in the making. And so it's not it's not we haven't made abrupt changes it's been they've been really well thought out and had some growing pains and fits and starts even in the negotiations for those relationships but i think financially we've been able to make it work because i think some of it is that pediatric orthopedics by the very nature of it especially uh, when you're talking about the patients within the shrine system within a department it's rarely one of the most productive parts uh, of an academic department, the orthopedic department. And so I, I think that in some ways helps us because they know that it is an important part of an academic medical center, but it is not, isn't always going to be the most financially productive part of an academic medical center. And so I think they realize that trying to make it a, a, a profit center is probably not going to work. It's not productive. It's just from the nature of the, the patients that we take care of. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think that that realization comes, I'm sure, first and foremost through the longevity of the relationship that you have. They've been able to, you know, see that over time. I think that's 
It's tremendous. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really remarkable system that you guys have set up and one that I'm sure that the shrine would probably want to emulate elsewhere if, you know, if you could have a similar relationship with a, with a university. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think having, having a, a really, really interested and a good academic partner is one of the, is a big part of the reason that the relationship works for us. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to to move on a little bit to your relation or your involvement with Pazna and sort of other organizations, um, and uh, and and I've known you as being you know part of the Pazna board and and being involved with a number of committees. Talk about a little bit about your initial involvement in Pazna and how you sort of got involved. In some ways, it was a little bit of a numbers game because Pazna when I when I first became involved in the organization, which was a much smaller organization. And so if you were a young member at that time, there weren't that many of you. And so you got ticketed to be on committees and do things, uh, and people were advocating for you. And so being part of the Scottish Rite family uh, has certainly played a huge role in that. Uh, And I know that those guys uh, and gals uh, were advocates on my behalf uh, silently and they never probably even told me about it, but I know that, uh, I know that they were, uh, people who helped me, uh, along the way to get on committees that, uh, were, uh, productive and to get, uh, nominated for things that allowed me to do things. And, and, you know, the organization is such a wonderfully run organization and anyone who's ever been on the board, I think realizes, uh, certainly for my time on the board, I felt like, well, I wish everybody could get this a level of insight into how this organization works because the people who are involved in it at the highest levels are uh, so dedicated and so um, selfless. I mean, they they give in a lot, so much time to it. Uh, I mean, it's a volunteer organization, and they give a tremendous amount of time to it and really love it. And when you see that, you you see how well the organization is run, how thoughtful they are in making decisions and you know it just motivates you to sort of when you are involved with it to to try and be uh, a good uh, steward of their uh, uh, sort of time and make sure that the money uh, you know when it's research funding or uh, however is being spent well uh, and used uh, productively but i've really loved my involvement with plasma yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I get asked a lot, and I got asked a lot last month, you know, from younger members, because I think you, you point out something uh, that's that's very true, which is it's harder and harder as the as the as our membership grows to become involved now. What do you have advice that you give to younger members, um, how, how to sort of start out and how to get involved and how to make a name for yourself within a larger organization? A few things I think are easy ways to do it. One is get on a committee, and it doesn't matter what committee it is, and you know, be be sort of a closer, be a finisher on that committee. So when you get a task, do the task. Or if you know you don't feel like some of the things that you're uh, you've got talents to give to the committee that maybe not being utilized, then speak up. And that's hard for for new members to do uh, when they're the new person on the committee, but you can certainly do it. You don't have to do it in a committee meeting. You can do it offline and talk to the chair of the committees because the committee structure uh, works because of the people involved in the committee completing the tasks that they are assigned or volunteer for. So I said, that's the easy one is get on a committee and do and be productive on that committee. And you'll get recommended to be on more committees. If you get a chance do the traveling fellowship. 
you know, there are three opportunities for members now to do traveling fellowships uh, in uh, Asia Pacific and Europe and South America. And it uh, is a jump start and it catapults you uh, from an academic standpoint and certainly from an organizational standpoint. And I think those are the two things that probably are the easiest uh, because, uh, you know, it's really just getting in a situation where they ask you to do stuff and then and then doing it. You know, people just like Dr. Green, right? Somebody's always watching you. And they know when you're doing those kinds of things. Uh, so it, it adds up. And, and uh, you know, I think one of the great things about our society is that the people who are the, you know, in the upper levels of leadership are so approachable and have always been that way. And, I, and you know, people like, uh, like Tony Herring and Vern Tolo, they love talking to young members and they feel like that's part of them and that's really a part of their uh, makeup is that they love passing it along and they uh i think it's unique in our society as you know being parts of other societies it's not always that way and not everybody is that approachable yeah i i think you make a great point you know i i've i've realized as i've gotten sort of further into my practice that you know your life just gets exponentially busier and having somebody who's sort of at the starting end of that process who can like you said come in and close is is gold, you know, because because you get to a point where you have too many balls in the air, and so you really depend on your committee members. And I think that that's uh, that's how a, a, a young member can really make a big impact for sure. Um, you mentioned the traveling fellowship. I didn't realize. Did you did you do one? Yeah, I did one with Pat Bosch and Eric Edmonds. Uh, so we went to South America, and we went to um, Brazil and Argentina and Chile. That was the year that the volcanoes were erupting, uh, and so so we were supposed to go to the Slayota meeting in uh, in Patagonia, but uh, the volcano was erupting, and so there was concern that people would not be able to fly down or fly back. So we weren't able to make it to the meeting. So uh, at some point, I'll have to go to a Slayota meeting. I owe them that. <laughs> well, I, 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 that would have been a, a pretty good one to go to. Patagonia would have been amazing. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, t- talk a little bit about, I mean, th- that experience, I'm sure, and, and I have not done it, is is remarkable. I know, obviously, the friendships that come out of that are probably the, the true highlight. But what else did you really glean or gain out of that fellowship? you could share well one of one of the things one of the big things that i learned is that there are really really talented well-trained people everywhere in the world and the academic centers in parts of the world uh, where there's a there's a a tremendous wealth discrepancy between people that uh, live and work in the cities versus people that live in the rural areas and uh, you know we think that there are parts of those countries that are underdeveloped but in, in the major centers there there are people who are, I mean, they are rock stars. They're um, amazing clinicians and researchers and the volumes that they see. Uh, I remember we were going through um, the neurofibromatosis clinic in Buenos Aires, and they were seeing 150 patients with neurofibromatosis in one day. <laughs> right? I mean, I thought, oh, I may not see that many in my old career. That's exactly. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, so it taught me that, and it also, you know, they they were doing things that, because of the resources available to them, they have to be, you know, very efficient and very creative with with how they do things. 
and they are excellent. They're really, I, I, if, if anything, I just respected those people so much because of their skill level. And so many of them had done multiple fellowships uh, also in, you know, in the States and in Europe. And so they were extremely well-trained people. Uh, and I was very, uh, I was very impressed with their clinical abilities as well as the patient populations that they were able to take care of. It was really, really fun. And, you know, the cultural exchange is, is awesome. Uh, and you get to uh, get really close with the fellows that you're traveling with and you meet people that uh, you stay in contact with. Uh, and, you know, it just, it shrinks the world. You know, as, as I get older, the world keeps shrinking. So I think that it helps you uh, realize that it really is a pretty small place. And even though the people that I met there, you know, I'm sure they, they get fellows every year. And I, I'm just a face in the crowd for them, but they, uh, they had a big impact on me and my uh, approach to medicine. That's amazing. And, and I bet you ate some really good food while you were down there. No that's, question. That's a great no area question. of the world. Yeah, that's <laughs> terrific. So I want, I want to finish up talking a little bit about family. And you and I have talked about this a, a lot before. And um, I don't think I've previously mentioned it, but we're doing this at like nine o'clock at night on a Sunday <laughs> after you had a day of baseball with, with your youngest son. And I've mm-hmm. always uh, thought it's just so cool. You've been able to stay incredibly involved with all, all of your kids, um, and, and uh, we were talking about your oldest having a pretty good summer down in Myrtle Beach, uh, also oh playing gosh, baseball. Yes. But but talk a little bit about that work life balance and how you what what sort of you've learned or what tricks you have come about along the way to make it so that you can you know balance a really busy clinical life with your with your home life that's so important. Yeah, so I, I think that's another one of the the, the things that stands out from uh, from my time in Dallas, as, as well as learning from everybody along the way, is is the uh, you know what is important and how to how to cultivate the relationships in your life. Uh, you know, I was uh, I may be the only orthopedic surgeon in the world who coached baseball for 15 years because I knew that uh, that window of time for my kids was going to be fleeting and it was going to come and go and that I wouldn't get it back and and uh, it was such. Sports were such a big part of my growth and youth and development, and I wanted to make sure that for them, if, if that was something that they wanted to do, that I was, I was involved in it. And so it was such a great thing to be able to spend time with them in a different way than, uh, than just being at home and seeing how they interacted with their friends, you know, traveling around uh, the, the country and uh, playing ball and uh, with our families. I didn't want to miss that time with my kids. Uh, and, uh, we've, we've been really lucky. And I think that's one of the things, you know, about my job is that I've just tried to do some of the things that Jack Flynn talks about and, and having a no fly zone and, you know, knowing in those situations that uh, if I had things to do that I've needed to do with my family, that that was non-negotiable. And, and so the work-life balance is, is really built on choices, as you know. And so making choices early on that can allow you to be in a situation that you have that capacity uh, is hard for people who are young in practice. Uh, and I was lucky that I got into a situation where I was with people who were aligned in the same way and had the same mindset. And certainly Chip has had a big influence on me as well because I think we we think the same way and we realize that uh, our families are so important to us. And we always tell each other that 
you know, we love taking care of our patients, but the people who are going to be at your funeral uh, are the people who are closest to you. And those are the ones that uh, you have to hold close and let them, them know that you care about them. And with young kids, that means being there. So it's so great that we've all in our group had the same sort of commitment to doing that because it's hard to be an outlier in a group if it's not part of the ethos of the group. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I've I've told the story once on the podcast before, but I made the mistake my I want to say it was my second year in practice. My, I sent my kids and wife down to visit her uh, folks in Florida over spring break. And granted, my kids were in like pre pre K, so there wasn't spring mm-hmm. break. It was sort of arbitrary. But my partner uh, Bob Bruce, who's a spectacular guy, and I have basically never fought in twelve years, and that was the only time he ever really got mad at me that I didn't <laughs> go down with him. And that's it's stuck with me now uh, still. And you know, now as my kids are you know approaching, my daughter's about to start driving, you realize pretty quickly that you know it, now I got to lock them in right now. They're yeah. now I got to now I got to take them on trips that they can't get away from me on. And so <laughs> right, right, right. I, I could not recommend more for younger faculty to realize that you have a you know 35 year career plus ahead of you where you're going to get a chance to take care of a lot of kids, but you've only got, you know, a relatively limited amount of time with, with your, with your own kids. So I try to spend as much time as I can with them. And yeah, I think our specialty is, is, is conducive to that because we're, we're sort of family friendly and it's different now than it was 40 years ago. And so people realize the value of being available and there for your family is irreplaceable. And so only do like Stephen Covey, right? Only do the things that only you can do. Uh, and so I've, I've really, uh, as my kids are, we're about to be empty nesters here in a few years. And uh, and I think about what are the kids going to remember? And they will remember the trips that we took together. And they'll remember um, the activities. You know, the, the, And so the, the more we've been able to do that, we sort of traveled as a family together not really to meetings, but we, you know, we took trips where we'd take long weekends to go to Chicago or we took a fall break where we'd go to DC and, and uh, everybody together. Those are, those are the times that they remember. And even now when we sit down and, and talk together, they'll remember and tell stories about those trips that they took 10 years ago, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. So, so not that I want to, uh, push you out too quickly, but what, uh, you know, you're a guy who has taught your kids how to play sports for 15 years. And you're like you mentioned, you're a couple of years away from that sort of going away. How do you see the next phase of your life as they as you do, do become empty nesters? What's going to keep you? Yeah, going? that's a great question. Well, you know, I think I think that probably as I as I move along in my career, I will be maybe less surgically active and be a little bit more. Uh, in a mentorship role uh, with some of our younger faculty, uh, although they're fantastic. I'm not sure they really need me as a mentor, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, maybe focus a little bit more on administrative things and ensuring our particular institution continues to grow and develop in a way that uh, makes it uh, meaningful uh, and a uh, um, an institution that uh, uh, continues to thrive for the next 50 years or longer. Uh, so I think maybe shifting to a little bit more administrative stuff like that. You know, I've thought about yeah, after all the kids are gone, maybe going back and coaching again uh, with some of my buddies. I was luckily I was able to come back uh, to my hometown, so the the places and the coaches 
that I had when I were kids, a lot of them were still coaching. And, uh, and some of the guys that I coached with when, uh, when my kids were playing ball were guys that I played with when I was a kid. So that's one of the beauties of coming back home is that the friends that I have are friends that I've had for 40 or 50 years. And not everybody has the good fortune to be able to, to be with the people that uh, have seen you grow up and you've grown up together. So I don't know. I think that the next phase of my life, uh, you know, probably when our kids are gone, my uh, wife will travel more with me to, to the meetings and, uh, uh, we'll do some more of, uh, of those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, what I've learned from my older partners is that as your kids move away, then you sort of, uh, you chase them, you find places to go where they want to go and take them with you still. And so, as your kids grow up, they become really, really interesting people, and it's fun to to be able to have conversations with them, which are different than the conversations that you had, where it seemed like you were always uh, trying to teach them something, and now they're you know they're teaching you things. And it's so much fun uh, being with them, uh, and it's so different than it was twelve years ago or fifteen years ago when they were such little uh, malleable pieces of clay, and now they're. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to, to hear their perspective on it. It is amazing thinking that my daughter is driving this week uh, and just that it goes really quick. Well, well, I think that's a good, it's a great perspective. It's, it's, it's good. She actually wants to be a pediatric orthopedist. So uh, I've told her that I'm going to just chase her wherever she goes and then we can go into practice together. But you're right. I, my, my plan is to, to chase my kids down eventually. That's perfect. That's yeah. perfect. You've imprinted on them well. I mean, she wants to go to Vandy and she's a lacrosse goalie like I was and she, uh, and she wants to be pediatric with PETA. So I think all those whis- uh-huh. those whisperings at night must have uh, finally paid <laughs> off for me. So, um, yep. well, Vish, I mean, this has absolutely flown. It's so much fun talking to you and, uh, and I've really enjoyed hearing your story and, and you've been really kind to, to share it with us. So, uh, so thank you. Well, I appreciate it very much. It's so much, uh, so much fun. And I think these conversations are, you know, the reason that I'm a pediatric orthopedist because it's awesome working with great people and uh, spending time with them. And uh, this last pause meeting was so enjoyable because it seemed like uh, a little bit of a family reunion uh, for all the people that we had been able to see for so long. And then to finally get together in person, it's just like a big party. It was, it was so much fun. I couldn't, uh, couldn't have enjoyed it more. Absolutely. Well, we'll have have a uh, a double reunion next year because it'll be back uh, back in Nashville, back in Nash Vegas. That's going to be great. That's right. Yeah. I Vish. Well, uh, be well, my friend. We'll talk soon. And thanks again. Oh, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Nick.